Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good grace and peace to you as well. Um, I send you greetings from Pastor Kurt today. Uh, he is in Houston for his post-op appointment. They flew flew to Houston yesterday and uh, talked to him Sunday night, and uh, he's feeling really good. And he is uh, assuming, thinking, believing that the doctor is going to release him to drive uh, after this appointment today, and that he will be back in the office in the morning, uh, ready to hit it. He uh, is ready to get back back to it for sure, and he sure misses y'all, and I do too. So I miss him. So um, uh, that's what's going on with Pastor Kurt. So he should be back here with us uh, next week. Um, as I as we ended our time last week, uh, the psalm that we are that we've been unpacking for the last few weeks uh, at the end of Second Samuel, it really takes an interesting turn uh, today, um, and part of it is so connected. Well, most of it is so connected to the psalms in general. Not just the psalm in Second Samuel, but the psalms in general. And we're going to be doing some work uh, in the psalms today uh, to see how they connect with each other. Um, and uh, I'm going to begin by reading from Psalm 41. Now that's it's a that's an important psalm. Uh, most of the psalms in the first book of the psalms. Remember, the psalms are divided up into how many books? No, not three. Good guess. You'll never forget it after today. How many books are in the Pentateuch? Five. In the Torah. Torah, Pentateuch, same thing. Five. The reason the Psalms are divided up into five books is to mirror the five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch. And so each one of the... the uh, Psalm 41 is the last Psalm in book number one. Over, I mean, a majority of those psalms are written by David. It's like heavy on the front end of the psalms are psalms of David. And every one of the psalms at the end of the books, and you'll see that, it it ends with a postscript. Most likely David did not write the postscript. Um, the person, the, the, the group of people that edited the Psalms and brought them together added this as a theological message. And you'll see that uh, at the end as we pray this together. So Psalm 41, let's pray. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When will, when one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely, while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friends, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. 
But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And everyone said, Amen. So no, just notice uh, verse 13. That's added. That was added by someone else. David did not write that. That is added because the people who put the Psalms together wanted each one of the books to end with this, uh, this climactic statement of uh, praise to God. And so that's just some kind of uh, dynamics of the Psalms I think is important to know. But before we get to the psalm in 2 Samuel, what were, what were some of the interesting themes that came up as we prayed that psalm together? Oh yeah, it's interesting, right? It, it, see, it, it almost seems out of place, doesn't it, Tim? So he's talking about the poor, and he's going along, and then it's all of a sudden there's this shift. Do you notice it? Um... I have said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. It's like he's focusing in on the poor, and then he turns to himself, I, and then he starts blaming his enemies, in essence, for these issues that he's facing in his breakdown with the Lord, because I have sinned against you. My enemies save me. And then he goes on and on and on about his enemies. And then he starts talking about his integrity. And uh, one of the things that Pastor Kurt, before he had surgery, would talk about the psalm in Second Samuel is that it seems as if for David, it's a lot of it is aspirational. It's not reality, but it's what David hopes to become. It seems that way for most of the Psalms, right? Oh, uh, because of my integrity, he says. And how much integrity did David have, especially late in his life, later in his life? Yeah, it, it, he he struggled in that arena a lot, and uh, it wasn't his enemy's fault that he was struggling with his integrity. It was actually because he became like an enemy. Like he was going after Uriah and like somebody that should have been his, uh, somebody that he should have been protecting his king. He's actually going after them. And so there's all of these issues that arise. But verse, so going over to the, to the, uh, to second Samuel, you know, we ended last week talking about this broad path. Yes. Yeah. Verse 1 is almost exactly like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. He says, weak instead of weak. From Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, it's very, it's like Jesus was quoting David on Very good. No doubt about it. Very good, Tom. Yeah. Blessed are those who are uh, poor. The, the Sermon on the Mount begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Luke, Luke's rendition of that is, blessed are the poor. And here in Psalm 41, it's blessed are the weak. And it'll be interesting to see if... Uh, do some of y'all have poor there? In verse verse 1? It's, it's all weak. Okay. 
Yeah, I knew it was somewhere. Very good. Interesting. So, Tom, very astute observation there, my friend. And, uh, and I think that's interesting. A lot of people, when Jesus was uh, in ministry, those three years, referred to him as the son of David. Jesus never refers to himself like that. It's people putting that title on him because they want him to be like David. Really? <laughs> but but that was their that was their image of what they wanted their Messiah uh, to be. Yes, a warrior and somebody that sees his enemies and does this to them, which we're going to uh, get into now. So, verse thirty-eight. I'm just going to read it all. I'm going to read the rest of the psalm and see what this just does to your soul as we read it. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You had delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me as soon as they hear of me. They obey me. They lose all heart. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their stronghold, strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes from a violent man. You rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. And he shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, how does it just what how does it hit you? How does that part of the psalm just hit you? Okay. I think it was just at the end he gave God all the praise for it, but I yes. enjoyed it. All right. What else strikes you about it? No. <laughs> no, he doesn't. It, it's like, I think it, I think that's, to me, the most striking thing of it. It's like, it's not, you're not just settled with with the wind. You're only settled with completely annihilating them. Right, like grinding them to dust. That's a very graphic language, 
right? Anything else strike you about this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you read it in the context of destroying evil, like the devil, yeah. it probably all makes good sense, but talking about the people that way is maybe a little harsh. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. To me, it kind of sounds egotistical. <laughs> okay. And kind of along the veins of because I'm being successful in what I'm trying to accomplish, I must be doing good and look at all that God is doing. Good. Good. Yeah, I think I think the psalm raises a question. Who is David really giving the credit to for his successes? Because <laughs> he he changes. It's like it's like I'm doing this, God's doing this, and so it's it, it's just really interesting. I think for promises that God made to David relative to his throne that there the there would always be someone on David's throne uh, ruling in Israel and it's certainly the New Testament writers they they seize that and you know Jesus's genealogy uh, plays it out that he is on both sides of his family Mary and Joseph even though technically Joseph has no no part in the birth of Jesus besides being his his adopted father, you might say. Uh, they are both from the line of David. Okay? And so, so Jesus is not uh, denying that. And there's an important promise that is being realized in Jesus, in the Messiah, being from the tribe of Judah, uh, that definitely comes to the forefront. But I think that one of the reasons that Jesus does not refer to himself as son of David he lets everybody else do that for him right but he doesn't is because of this, there's this there's this thing with enemies that is really challenging relative to the Old Testament and then when you move to the New Testament um, and relative to David's obsi- I, it seems as if and I, and I suppose being a king in the ancient world uh, and even being a, a ruler of a nation now uh, that you have to kind of be obsessed with your enemies because they're always trying to destroy you. And so how much time does our president spend uh, on national security? Well, now let's not, we're not going to get political here, Richard, but you know what I mean? Hopefully a lot. Uh, well, anyway, um, but I just want to show you some things that I find interesting. And this is, this is just kind of detail stuff, but I do think it, it, it matters in our, uh, discussion about enemies. Just want you to look at this. I did a, did some, uh, searching for the word enemy. And you might just write this down for fun. Um, so 388 times, at least in the New International Version, the word enemy or enemies arises. It's not the whole Bible. Remember the old, and, and, and so then the Old Testament is, I'm not sure why it's all, 352. All right. So the New Testament takes up approximately a quarter of the Bible. All right, and uh, so if that's 
if 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 the the words are spread evenly over the course of both test you know over the course of the Bible, and so th- what's a quarter of three eighty eight? Twenty five percent of three eighty eight. Yeah, ninety two, and then you you get to the New Testament usage of it, thirty six. Isn't that interesting? I don't think this is it's it's not a it's not by accident. There there is a an obsession with enemies in the Old Testament that seems to fade in the New Testament because our enemies have been defeated. In the cross, in the resurrection, they have been defeated. And now we no longer have to see people as enemies per se like David did. But we see enemies in a different way. Primarily the way that we are formed and shaped to look at our enemies is how? Culturally. Just name a couple of ways. Do what? To hate them. Hate them. Will their good or will their harm or, or, or bad things happen to them? For sure. I think the West Texas way of dealing with enemies just withdraw. Just don't have anything to do with them, right? What else? Enemies are to be conquered, to be defeated, crushed into the dust. It's interesting how the discourse in our in our culture has gone the last, let's say, last seven years, ten years, not sure how long, but it's really become acute. And you all know this, right? If you disagree with me, you are now my enemy. Disagreeance causes people to rise to the level of an enemy. Right? And one of the things I want you to see is for followers of Jesus, this is not to be. There is a different, a better, a more holy way relative to to relating to our enemies than David related to his. Now, I'm not beating David up. Uh, David was a man of his time. But we know, we know that David did things relative to his enemies that were not good. All those times that Joab just went and, you know, took his guys out, not good. Why can't, why doesn't David build the temple? The symbol of God's presence on the earth. Why? Y'all remember? That's right. Blood on his hands. This this passage from uh, from Chronicles uh, twenty eight one, or excuse me, verse twenty eight. Uh, see, where's that? Yeah, verse three. But God said to me, "You are not to build a house for my name." Because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yeah, I don't think that's just because he was the leader of the armies of Israel. But I think that shedding of blood was the shedding of the, the blood in ways in which were not good and were not in, uh, a, were not, in, were not congruent with the character of God. The Joab instance, the Uriah instance, uh, the situation with his son Absalom. I mean, 
He says, don't kill him. He says, keep him safe. But boy, he sure didn't do anything to ensure that that would happen, did he? So it's, it's that kind of thing. One more note. So we, we get, you got all the numbers written down. Entire Bible. How many times is the enemies mentioned? Uh, come on. 388. In the Old Testament, 352. Notice the Psalms. 94. And who's responsible for 75% of the Psalms? David. <laughs> so interesting. And then the New Testament, a mere 36. And all of that, then how these uses of enemy or enemies in the New Testament actually are. And it becomes some of the most difficult teaching there is in the New Testament. Because we have been so enculturated from uh, Cain forward. Who became an enemy to Cain? Abel. That's the first right. Well, Adam and Eve in some ways became enemies to each other, right? But then this uh, this way you relate to each other as your enemy that leads to violence and leads to death, right there from the beginning, right? And so Jesus, as he comes to decisively uh, reverse the curse, you might say, he's going to have something radically different to say about our enemies. So Matthew 5, 5, 43, you can just look at a couple of these. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Next verse. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, just switching on down to uh, Romans. Yeah, so here's Romans 12. We'll start in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to God. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, he's saying a lot there. But notice the transformation, if you know Paul's story well. This is a transformation that he himself made. He was someone who killed, murdered Christians. Not just oversaw the murder, but he himself did it. He confesses that later in Acts. It, it kind of gets overlooked. Uh, murdered Christians. And then he has made this transformation. Why? Because he had an experience. A, an experience and a newfound faith in the risen Christ. Who has overcome all of our enemies. And that's the only way I can see. Like, in my family's greatest moments of loving our enemies, that is the only way that I could do it. 
and to do it with any sort of, of heart behind it is knowing that there wasn't a battle to be won or lost in loving my enemy because the battle has already been won through, through the risen Christ. We are resurrected people, right? And so uh, I find it interesting. It's like in that, that passage in Romans, if we are made in God's image, right, and God is someone who distributes vengeance, then why should not we distribute vengeance if we're made in his image? Why do we leave that to God? Part of it is, I think, is motivation. In general, when we are ready to execute vengeance on an enemy, why do we want to do it? Hmm? Yeah, so, I've been hurt, so I want to hurt somebody back, right? For our, and and somehow we've convinced ourselves that that's going to make us feel better, right? Any other reason? Well, yeah, it's so, so then, why does, what is the primary motivation for God exacting vengeance on our enemies? That's right, Kurt. Their salvation. Remember, the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, I think it's all kind of in the same, same, uh, family of words, the wrath of God is never punitive. It's never just to say, you're going to pay the price because you did this. It is to uh, allow, right, the natural consequences of their actions to put kind of negative pressure on them so that they will repent. And turn their back on their evil ways. That is the purpose of the wrath of God. It is not punitive. It is always redemptive. That's a great question. So why, why, why were the Canaanites, why were the Canaanites at the hands of the Israelites? Why did God invite them to wipe them completely out? That, yeah, that this whole issue of child sacrifice. They are killing their babies in the name of the gods, right? And so how does, how does something like that, how, how, do you, how does that stop? I mean, you are people that are supposed to bring forth life, and you are taking life. And it's so hard for us as modern people so hard for us. You're kidding me. People were murdering their children, believing that that would uh, that that God would be happy about that, and then take care of them. That's basically the 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 logic, right? That they'd become so depraved that they had to be dealt with decisively. And um, as the Israelites are moving through the Canaanite country doing this. Uh, I wonder if they thought, uh, maybe we're doing something wrong here. And 
there was, I do believe that there's always space for people to repent before the, before the full extent of God's wrath is executed. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Pharaoh's heart. I mean, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? He hardened it. But what about the first five times he hardened his own heart? Oh, is there a limit? I do not believe. Yeah. For the Canaanites. And so what for for people who are sacrificing their babies, what is the best way to love our to love those babies? Right? And so I think it's not like these cut and dry answers. I think you have to really kind of examine what the situation is, and what is the best way to love. Because remember what love is. It is willing the good of the other. Right? And how best in that situation now can we will their good? It's hard. It is a lot. Which is... Why we're supposed to leave you out. <laughs> well... I do think it, we're, we're always called to be involved. It's not like this, this stepping back thing uh, completely, but it is allowing the Word of God to lead us to lead with love. And we, we, when we say that, lead with love, that sounds like milk toast or something. It's exactly the opposite. Because at the end of the day, what is the greatest expression of love? Exactly. The cross. Laying down our lives for the sake of others. So think about David's life. When was he really loving his enemies? Or when was he really loving his people? Yeah, kind of in the beginning when this giant, this monster was taunting Israel, right? And he didn't have anything to, he didn't have anything to, uh, he had no, no business fighting Goliath. But he did it out of the context of love, you might say. Willing the good of his people and willing to lay down his life for their own, for, for their sake. That kind of thing. And the other king, I, I, it, the name escaped me, but the one where he tore his cloak, his back of his... Uh, yeah, Saul. Yeah, he, he had a couple times to off him. He, he could have, that's right, he didn't do that. That's David at his best, right? Trusting God and not going after it. I mean, that's he had every right to take care of Saul, but he didn't do it. So, I think. Oh man, we're running out. Of, we're out of time. Like this whole like for us, especially in the cultural situation that we find ourselves in. One of the things that I'm, I'm I'm concerned about for y'all and for others in our church is that we don't get caught up in that. If you disagree with me, then you're my enemy. Right? Israel, from its initial calling, when God called Abraham, the, the thing that gets left off uh, the most is that Abraham was blessed by God 
For what purpose? To be a blessing to who? The nations, right? Exactly. And so all of those, especially as Israel grew up, those nations were their enemies. And so while it seems as if the Old Testament and the New Testament are in different ends of the spectrum relative to this enemy thing, no, it's not. It's just we don't go back to the beginning, right, of the people of God and how we are to be a light, a blessing to the nations. And so what happens is, is that we see that everything that's swirling around culturally, and we disagree with a lot that's going on. Yes, it like gets us angry. I mean, like fire in our gut. How can this be happening? Right. But if we let that fire get out of control, we become obsessed with our enemies and their downfall instead of being obsessed with our calling to be a light to them. And so... That anger that we feel um, when we see things falling, you know, going going by the wayside all around us, that's got to be turned. And it's got to be turned into a prayer. God, how can I love that person? God, how can I love those people? That kind of thing. To will their good, even if it cost me something. Anybody have a th- one last thought for the good of the group? I don't know how to word it. I don't think anybody in this room we were probably all raised the same way. I don't I don't harbor anything toward anybody. And if somebody, I don't know where, where that left us. If you had a conversation and one was a Democrat and one was a Republican, you still went and played poker together or yeah. Sunday bowling or, but now it's, they've taken it to such an extreme. It's, yeah. even if you say the word it, depending on what it means, you still freak out. Right. Right. Well, uh, now, how could you do that? Because it's 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 not just on the first level. I think we're on the fourth, yeah, fourth and a half level to the point where I I, I had COVID, and there was a lady who she was wearing it. But I, I, I just said something to her, and from that day forward, I get the evil eye. Because mm-hmm. I said, I don't particularly feel like wearing a mask. Yeah. COVID, so what yeah. I mean, she flipped. Well, well. The devotional in today's upper room addresses that it calls a spiritual clutter. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think what's happening. And, and, I, and I'll leave y'all with this. Um, culturally, we are now, and Midland may not be there, but it's coming. We are now in a post-Christian world. Post-Christian culture. And so the benefits that our culture had 
with most people uh, believing the story of Scripture. That benefit is gone. People are rejecting this grand story of Scripture for the sake of what? Their story. That my story is the only story that matters. And if my story does not get affirmed by you, you are my enemy. And because of that, because, so, anybody ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? You should read it. It's really, really short. It's a great read. Um, it's about uh, people making a trip from hell to heaven and how most of them choose to go back to hell. Fascinating, right? You know what heaven is like? And he wrote this right after uh, World War II. You know what hell is like in the Great Divorce? Anybody know? It's like towns with fat houses a thousand miles apart. Because they get offended by their neighbor, so they just move. And so think about that. Just think about that. How is that not being realized in Christendom today? You just get it, so you just move. Just move. Everybody's everybody's my enemy because we do not have this common story that we're moving towards anymore. So there's your challenge for the week. When you feel the emotion well up in your soul, instead of how am I going to distance myself or how am I going to lash out, how am I going to gossip, it's going to be Jesus, free me to love them well and show me the way to do it. Lord, um, I confess that we get confused about David's journey, his relationship with his enemies, and Lord, I thank you for the clarity that you have given us to relate to our enemies in a way that you relate to us. Thank you that while we were still your enemies, you died for us. And Jesus, we are deeply, deeply grateful And I pray that our lives and the way that we live them, the way that we interact with others, will communicate that same truth back to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace, brothers.